You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Lance Noble, co-founder and co-editor of Berkeley's award-winning independent online news site, Berkeley Side. What is the secret to Berkeley Side's success? What accounts for Berkeley Side's particular sort of ambition and success? First, everybody involved in Berkeley Side, particularly the three founders, myself, Francis Dinkelspiel, and Tracy Taylor. All of us came to Berkeley Side with lots of experience, you know, many decades of work in journalism. So we bring that knowledge and experience to it. And I think that shows in how we cover things, how we write about things, our seriousness, our intent, all of those things manifest. I think we're also incredibly fortunate in the nature of Berkeley. Um, That can't be denied. Um, This is a city, first of all, where there's tons of news. We're never short of interesting, fascinating, complex things to write about. And discerning readers. Yes, that's the second part. Readers who really care um, and are very, very engaged, which is, I don't think, that common. I think there's no denying that Berkeleyans have a particularly intense involvement in what's happening in their city. How do you get your stories? We get our stories in a number of ways. Um, one, obviously, is you know the conventional journalistic way of getting stories. Um, pounding the pavement, speaking to people, going to city council meetings, seeing that there's uh, a hearing on a building, all of those very, very conventional things. What is new for Berkeley side, and I think for many others, is that our community is also an incredibly important source of news for us. That may range from getting a phone call or a tweet or a Facebook comment, hey, Berkeley side, I heard sirens, what's going on? And that would trigger a call from us to uh, the police. So or... you always vet these news stories that come to you. Yeah, yeah. We, we, you don't, have... we don't just mindlessly retweet things. We, we, we try and be quite rigorous about things. But if uh, somebody particularly, you know, often, you know, at this point, we're seven years old. So we know a lot of our readers, particularly the people that are engaged and get in touch with us. So you know, there are people we, we've got a lot of faith and trust in and they've established a track record. That's different than just getting something out of the blue. But, you know, we get a lot of tips, which, as I say, may be very simple. Um, I smell smoke. You know, is there something mm-hmm. happening? What's the helicopter doing over, you know, my street? Uh, You know, I hear police sirens. You know, we had a fascinating story uh, just a few weeks ago where somebody phoned us and said, I came across a really strange thing. And it was a pile of discarded ballot papers, the county ballot that sent out. Somebody had found a bundle of, I forget what it was, 43, just in a recycling bin and said, what on earth is going on? And so he had himself phoned the uh, registrar of voters who said that shouldn't be happening. And then the police got involved and they said, this is evidence of crime. And he called us and said, you might want to look into this. And Emily Raguso, our amazing you know, senior reporter, you know, she kind of got on the trail and you know, she on Facebook and Twitter said, hey, are people having issues 
with the mail. And it turned out that this was not an isolated incident, that the mail carriers in Berkeley have been so kind of overwhelmed by the volume of mail, particularly in the election season, but also the fewer resources in the post office. So there are fewer mail carriers for greater volume being required to do double shifts, all of these things. People were getting their mail delivered at midnight. Uh, People were finding their mail had just been dumped. There were all sorts of problems. And that all came from just one phone call. So, you know, that's, I I wouldn't say it's typical, but it's not uncommon. Is that any different from major newspapers like New York Times? I mean, don't they get tips as well? And Of course, most famously in this last election season, you know, one of the New York Times reporters, when she looked in her mailbox at the New York Times, there were the Trump tax returns, the unfortunately only one set of tax returns from way back when. But, you know, that, that was fantastic investigative journalism that just fell into her lap. So yeah, that does happen. But I think it is the case that, you know, local news has a particularly intimate uh, relationship with its readers. um, And so we benefit from that. It's also the case that, you know, we're in a world where Everyone has the ability to be an observer, a reporter in their way, whether it's through things they say on Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, we're harvesting all that. And I think, you know, when I worked in journalism, you know, in the pre-digital age, all of us were aware of kind of getting letters written in green ink, um, which is the sign of a kind of crazy, cranky person. Sometimes there are interesting things. More often than not, it's a sign of a crazy, cranky person that has you know, <laughs> no, no, no uh, basis in fact. So that kind of thing has always happened. But there's so many new avenues. And I think the uh, intelligent news organization finds ways to tap and harvest all those new ways of getting information. You make a distinction between content providers and real journalism and the dangers that we face when real journalistic investigations, etc., don't happen. You've been known to solve what is known as wicked problems. <laughs> is this one of the challenges and the problems that you're trying to solve at Berkeley side? I mean, in journalism? Well, we're, we're incredibly committed to a profound belief in the importance of journalism for our democracy. You know, in you know, a city like Berkeley, no one else is really going to be the watchdog of what's happening. You know, we're pretty rare in being, you know, journalists that show up every city council meeting. Uh, we show up every meeting of the Zoning Adjustment Board. Uh, we show up to the school board. All of these things, you know, you need the sunlight uh, that, you know, good journalism can provide. I I think that's incredibly important. The thing I'd shy away from is creating this kind of hard and fast distinction between journalists and others. We're fortunate in this country that we don't have any licensing scheme for journalists. Many, many, many years ago, I ran a small publishing company in Italy. And to be journalista in Italy, you know, you needed to have, you know, that license to show you were a professional journalist. Now, at one level, you could say, well, that's good. Everybody has to have certain professional standards they meet. And, you know, why shouldn't they be licensed the way 
doctors and lawyers, given that you believe journalism is important, shouldn't you have something that says this person is fit to serve as a journalist? I, I, I would reject that absolutely. I suspect if anyone, and maybe uh, President Trump will try this, if anyone tried to do it, I'm pretty sure it would be shown to be unconstitutional as a suppression of you know the free press and free speech. People commit acts of journalism all the time, and they don't have to necessarily be journalists. I don't believe that there is a sacred class to whom these acts of journalism are a kind of holy order with a secret language and, uh, you know, a, a decoder ring. It's been a bit of a wild west lately. There have been some fake news sites, especially during this election cycle. This is a huge problem. And, you know, our friends at Facebook, you know, down there in Menlo Park, one would hope if there is a sense of responsibility there, they need to look at their algorithmic approach to showing people things that allegedly they'll be interested in, where wholly fake news, I mean, there are organizations that have set up to provide fake news, because they know it can appear in people's Facebook feeds, and you can monetize that, you know, if you get traffic to your site. This is horrific. Uh, you know, Brian Stelter, who talks about the media on CNN, has done some fantastic work and has spoken out in really incisive ways about how to guard against fake news. And, you know, we all need to be aware of that. Any of us who are in our 40s, 50s, 60s, we didn't grow up in a digital age. Um, we grew up in an age where newspapers were on paper or you listen to the radio or watch television. But we learned the cues where you could discern between what is authoritative and what is fake, or at least you thought you did. And you know, you, you gained a good sense of you know, something that was the National Enquirer by the supermarket checkout. You regarded that as having a different relationship to the truth than uh, the New York Times or the LA Times or the San Francisco Chronicle. You kind of understood that at a very instinctive level. In the digital world, a lot of those cues have been removed. You know, the, the generation that's growing up that's wholly digital, I'm confident my two sons will never buy a paper newspaper. But they, I think, you know, have from a very early age, you know, developed the instincts to understand what's real and what's fake in a digital realm. Your children may have a critical analysis that many, many people do not get educated. I think all of us need to learn and find ways to make that discernment and to learn that filtering process to learn what can I trust, what can I believe in, and how can I develop the skills to dig in and find something. Is that real before I mindlessly uh, repost it and send it and share it with my friends? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, I'm interviewing Lance Noble, co-founder and co-editor of Berkeley Side. You lived in England for like 20 years. 27 years. 27 years, and then you came back to the States. How did the idea, Berkeley Side, enter your framework? Very simple and very innocent. Tracy Francis and I, I, Tracy is my wife. Francis was a friend. Our children went to school together. So we were all journalists, all knew each other. And we were aware and lamenting the fact that the city we live in, there was no way to find out what was going on. You landed in Berkeley. 
Yeah, we moved to Berkeley when we moved from London, Tracy and I. You know, in what was going on at the time? What were people reading? If you wanted local news, there was nothing. I mean, there was uh, the Berkeley Daily Planet, which at that time was still coming out on paper twice a week. But the Berkeley Daily Planet was, you know, very clearly. Uh, about advocacy journalism. It covered some things. It ignored other things. If you wanted to know what's happening at Berkeley High, you would never read about it in the Berkeley Daily Planet. You know, if you wanted to know, you know, about crime, you know, they did the occasional police blotter item, but that wasn't uh, the core of their being. They were trying to press a point of view and to give a perspective as they saw it on, uh, you know, the politics of the city and particularly the politics of development and things like that, there was nowhere other than the occasional story in the Chronicle maybe, but there was no one that was regularly covering what's happening in our city. And we thought, hey, we know how to do this. And we started it thinking this is something that will be interesting to do from time to time. And you were thinking digitally at the time. Oh, yeah. From the word go, it was going to be native to the Internet. I mean, seven years later, I think we've been proved right in that no dream whatsoever of putting ink on paper and, you know, having the delivery trucks roll out or any of that sort of stuff. We believed and are very committed to this being a digital uh, news source. But and, and at a very early stage, people said, this is great. You know, where have you been all my life? Well, you, what were you, you covering? What kind of stories? Just stuff that struck our fancy. Okay. Um, both Some kind of personal both, things. Both little things. You know, I saw this. I was curious about it. I tried to find out. But also, you know, started going to city council and writing about that. And you know, Berkeley and Berkeleyans have a very distinct view of themselves. I can recall people pushing back at us and saying, well, you haven't been here for 20 years, so you don't understand anything, and you're never going to understand anything. because you, That is you, very Berkeley. You know, and uh, we rejected that. We didn't think that person or the people that said that were correct, and I think you know we've had the last laugh on that one. Let's talk more about that, um, how you ramped up. What got you on the map? All of our growth has been organic. You know, people saying to friends, hey, you know, did you see this story on Berkeley side? What on earth is Berkeley side? Oh, you don't get Berkeley side. You know, you should have a look at and it. And it was free. And it, it, and it remains know, free. Yeah. And, you know, so it has been entirely growth by word of mouth. But there is beyond doubt, there are some stories that, you know, capture greater attention. And, you know, an early story in Berkeley side was the Gourmet Ghetto Mountain Lion you know, which we covered, you know, from early in the day. It you know, happened in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, a mountain lion wandered down from the hills into the gourmet ghetto, was seen, reported to the police. The police, you know, deployed, uh, eventually found the mountain lion, much to the sadness of many. But I think you know, the only choice the police had was they had to kill this mountain lion. All of us, you know, from comics and tv shows you think oh why didn't they use a tranquilizer dart it turns out that if you shoot a mountain lion with a tranquilizer dart it can probably run for a mile and a mile and a half and (laughs) you do not want a mountain lion running through the streets when you know we have you know homeless people we have children that might have been out you know for some reason Um, a whole bunch of reasons why you do not want a mountain lion running through the street. Anyway, the police had to kill this mountain lion. Uh, We wrote about this. Uh, It's the kind of story that does go viral. And so that gave us a burst. 
Fast forward to when there were the large Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations in Berkeley. You know, we covered that literally around the clock, you know, a reporter following what was happening, writing about it live, you know, tweeting, Facebooking, updating the story on our site, you know, posting videos round the clock without cease. And our readership really spiked and during that. And did that story get picked up by other news outlets? It was, Everywhere. you know, it certainly was picked up in many places. We covered it better than anyone else. You know, the, the protests were big enough that lots of media were covering that story. But we covered it, you know, so visibly better than anyone else. Lots of people learned about Berkeley Side then, and that gave us a huge boost. The balcony collapse, uh, you know, was a story covered all around the world. But several days after the balcony collapse, when most of the world's media had left because the story had moved on, you know, I think in the next two or three months after that collapse, we published 60 stories about the balcony collapse. You know, so we are committed to what's happening in the city and we follow stories with an intensity and a concentration that other people are just not going to do. And, you know, the thing we always talk about as both our joy and our burden is that, you know, when people smell spoke or hear a siren, the immediate thought they have or hear a helicopter, they think is, I need to look at Berkeley Psych because they're going to tell me what's going on. We love that, but it also means, you know, we have to be on our toes all the time to to reward that faith that people have that will be reporting on it. Yeah, and I feel like with this recent election that there's almost a bigger faith in local news coverage because so much of the national media gave a pass to the president-elect. There were a lot of issues around media. Yeah, I think cable news blew it more than uh, newspapers blew it. I mean, the Washington Post in particular, I think, did a fantastic yeah. job of covering. I mean, David Farron told on the fraud of the Trump Foundation, um, you know, if he doesn't win the Pulitzer and every other prize going, something is very wrong. So there's some people that did a very good job. I think yeah. the New York Times was a very New York Times was very up and down. It had, you know, Maggie Haberman and a few others. There was some great reporting, but there were also, you know, totally freaking out about the nothing burger of the emails on Hillary's side. Yeah. And also for a long time, normalizing very abnormal behavior in the case of Trump. I mean, they eventually caught yes. on and called lies lies, but there it was took a, a long time. It took a long. And what was what were the cues that were missed there? The data was wrong. The polls were wrong. This is not my area of expertise. I read about it endlessly, but you know, I'm reading other experts. Uh, the polls actually weren't wrong. Nate Silver has pointed out that the polls are going to turn out to be more accurate for 2016 than they were for 2012. What wasn't accurate were the state-by-state polls. The national polls got the vote pretty close. Hillary's going to end up being probably 2% with 2% more of the vote than Donald Trump. At the level that counts, uh, the 50 contests in our states for the Electoral College, some of the polls fell down very badly. You know, Michigan, Wisconsin, You've talked about some of the challenges facing Berkeley side. I just read a University of Missouri study that said many of the challenges are reduction in revenue from display advertising and just being sustainable. You've managed to stay sustainable. Can you talk about what your revenue model is and some of the things that you're doing in order to remain sustainable? We make revenue three different ways. And I think it's important that we have different, we have a diversified source of revenues. Uh, We're not relying on any one source. I think that's incredibly important for us. 
advertising remains the most important source. The second important source of revenue for us is our members. Berkeley side doesn't make people pay for the news. And as far as we're concerned, we'll never make people pay for the news, but we allow people to pay for the news. What we have found remarkable, and this is another area where I think Berkeleyans are proving to be a very special breed of people. When we ask people, do you want to pay for the news? A lot of people say, sure, I'll pay something. And we have about 1,200 people who pay an average of about $70 a so year. So in your membership, do you say pay what you can? You know, if you go to the support page on Berkeley side, uh, what you see prominently is give 25 10 or $5 a month. But you can also see below that, give whatever you want. And so it's choose your own menu. Uh, and is this growing every year? Have you been mad? Every year has grown. Um, no question about it. And we think there's a lot of room for growth in, in the revenue there. But as I say, at the moment, we have about 1,200 members uh, giving an average of $70 a year. And so what's the geography of those members? Our readers and certainly our members, overwhelmingly Berkeleyans. And then the third area of revenue, and it's another one where we think there is a lot of room for growth, is events. You know, we've recently had the fourth edition of the Uncharted Ideas Festival. How's you know, the attendance? Is it's grown every year. How many people came out? We had about 400 people. You know, one of the reasons, well, there are a number of reasons why we think there is a lot of potential with Uncharted and potentially other events. Um, one is... Although there's a lot of room, we believe, for growth with our core Berkeley side, the advertising, the membership, we're clearly geographically constrained with that. There are only so many people, so many advertisers that want to reach those people, so many people that could be members. With Uncharted, we don't have that geographic constraint. We have a scattering of people, and at the moment, it's only a scattering. But you know, there's a couple that comes every year from San Diego. You know, they make it kind of part of their plans. Uh, some people come from uh, Napa County, and you know, they. You know, one woman said to me. This is so fantastic. You know, nothing like this happens where I live. You know, I'm going to get all my friends to come. So we're not geographically constrained. We're also not constrained in terms of the companies we can go to who can sponsor Uncharted. In their it's kind ter- of like a little mini Davos, which you have a lot of experience. <laughs> I used to run Davos. So I, I actually don't think it's a mini Davos in any way because Davos is about... Uh, the super rich and the super powerful. The dirty secret of Davos and many things like Davos is powerful people are often uninteresting or certainly uninteresting at the level of ideas. It is vanishingly rare for a CEO to be interesting, at least interesting on a public stage. Most of them are trained to give you oatmeal all the time because what's wrong for them is saying something that's going to be interesting or quotable or different. That's a bad thing for them. We don't want those people at Uncharted. We want people who are going to provoke you and make you think and make you challenge what you've always thought. And, maybe, and, 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 and perhaps you disagree. But... And perhaps you disagree, but certainly introduce you to things you never thought about before. That's a very, very different challenge. And the liberation for me of doing what we do with Uncharted is I can pick people who have no impressive title whatsoever that people have not heard about, but they are fascinating thinkers and we can put them on stage and I you know I, I kind of hope and believe you will be hearing from these people but you don't need those credentials 
in advance to get on the stage at Uncharted. And that's that's very liberating for us. And I think it's fascinating for the people who come. So so it's advertising membership events. And we think that tripod of revenues is key to our health. I have noticed on your site, and I also read about it in the Chronicle, that you are introducing something that allows your readers to invest. This is an interesting democratization of a local newspaper. Well, we think we think it's it's good, and we're increasingly certain that we're the first news organization, maybe the first media organization, to do this. Uh, direct public offering is a very little known, though long existing, way to offer an investment direct to the public without going through a stock exchange, without going through an investment bank, without you know the kind of Kickstarter and things like that are you know I think a great way for people to raise money in various ways. But this is actually a real investment. The state's Department of Business Oversight reviewed what we were doing. They had to license us. And we're going directly to our readers and to other interested people. You have to be a California resident. That's the only qualification to encourage them to invest directly in Berkeley side. Um, it's something the Green Bay Packers did, uh, you know, the only community-owned team in the NFL. And it just felt this is the right thing for us as Berkeley side. We're all about the community we serve. So this is the right way for us to raise capital. It does feel good to invest in your community. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Main Street, not Wall Street. People must be really watching this. Um, we had a very good story, um, Neiman Lab. The Neiman Center is at Harvard University. They uh, study and uh, research uh, the media, you know, funded by the Neiman Foundation. Uh, Neiman Lab wrote about it. So I think a lot of people in the know in media and journalism would have seen that. The San Francisco Chronicle just wrote about it. Daily Cal wrote about it. And I think we'll get more coverage for it because if there's one thing journalists are very interested in, it's what's happening to other journalists. Right. So I think it's a kind of story that um, we think you know will get picked up and other people will write about it. We're licensed to raise $800,000. That's our goal. Um, that's what we're really committed to. We're about a quarter of the way there, and it's very, very early. I'm sure it's closely watched because it could become a great model for others. That's exactly right. I, I yeah. don't think there's any one model for what's right. going to make local news thrive, but I think our diversified revenue stream and our using this direct public offering as a way to raise the capital so we can fund our ambitions. I mean, we want to do so much more. That's why we're raising capital. What is the future of Berkeley Side? We are committed to covering Berkeley as well as it can be covered. That's the core of our existence. Will we create at some point Oakland Side? That's such an enormous task. You know, Berkeley is a city of 120,000 people. We've largely bootstrapped our way to covering that. Covering a city, the complexity of Oakland, four times the size of Berkeley, more than four times the complexity of Berkeley, you'd need really significant investment to do that well. Maybe one day. I don't think in on a five-year horizon that's the right thing for us. Um, but we, you're a strategist. Where are you? Where are you thinking <laughs> you're going to be? I'm very skeptical of the value of strategy. I... I think you know, strategy is helpful in that it can present different scenarios and things like that. I think people that plan out what they're going to do, that never happens. Uh, you know, 
plans confront reality and things change. I'm a firm, firm believer, you know, there's this notion of design thinking. You talk about innovation, you've probably encountered it. But, you know, design thinking as opposed to engineering thinking. Engineering thinking would be, yes, we have a strategy and I've got 20 steps that are going to take me to this goal that I've decided is where we want to get. Um, A design approach is more, I know it's going to be a chaotic process. I know that there are going to be twists and turns that one can't predict but I have a North Star that I'm, I'm aiming at and that we will find our way to. And our North Star is, is being the best possible local independent online news provider. Um, our core focus is Berkeley. Because we've solved Berkeley, we may say, hey, we've got, got it right in Berkeley. Let's look at who knows what other, other areas. Um, but we need to get Berkeley right. And we think there's, you know, we think we've done a great job over seven years, but we've got a long way to go to, to really solve that and say, this is done, you know, it's sustainable, it's, it's working. There's no question about its future. Now we can start looking at other things. I think it would be a real distraction for us to say, hey, let's add two other cities or something like that. That's a way to, to collapse. At the very early stage of this conversation, you asked about lots of online news operations have folded. Uh, The one thing that is certain and that a lot of people have gotten wrong is journalism doesn't scale. We've done a lot of good things with Berkeley side, but that doesn't mean it's an algorithm that you can just roll out in another city and you'll well, get Patch it right. Is a good example. Patch is a fantastic example. They made the mistake of thinking you create 800 patches. Patch, part of AOL, uh, now owned by a mysterious uh, you know, uh, private equity group that are they're just zombie sites that don't do anything. But you know, they said, oh, just like newspaper chains, we're going to create a digital chain and we're going to create 900 of them over the next two or three years. That's nonsensical. That doesn't happen. And, you know, we know because we know the difficulty of doing it right in Berkeley, how hard it is to get it right for your city. And that's Cities what are not fungible. They're not fungible and journalists aren't fungible. You need to find the right person and the right people who know and are committed to that city. If you go to berkeleyside.com and look at the contact page, you know, our phone number's there, our email addresses are there. You can write to us, tips at berkeleyside.com. And if you're interested in the investment, it's invest.berkeleyside.com. You know, we are open. Uh, we want to talk to people. We want to hear from people. We're very engaged with our right readers and our community. Right off the campus in the WeWork building. Yeah, lean we, and mean. Yeah, exactly. Very lean, very mean. Well, thank you for being on the program. Like, Thanks a lot, Lisa. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. Tune in next week, Friday at noon.